Brothers, welcome, man. I am so excited about this first phase of this podcast. Welcome to Black Beat Podcast Show, where we have conversations with our guests that are unapologetically black in nature. I'm John Washington. I'm the editor-in-chief of Flossa Media and your podcast host for this episode. Now, I've been eagerly anticipating the chance to have a conversation with you, brothers. The conversation is a conversation that only black men can have with one another about the, the current state of our condition and how we, or how we need to be reacting or responding to those things that are affecting us in adverse or favorable ways. Joining me today in this dialogue are four black men that have come to appreciate as a way of being ready to engage eagerly in, in often difficult but necessary conversations. Welcome, gentlemen. Let me go around the circle and, and I'd like you all to, to please introduce yourselves and to tell us a little bit about the work you're currently doing. And I'd like to start with you, Cupid, Cupid since you've been the first on, on deck. Yeah, so uh, Cupid Alexander, Director of Strategic Initiatives in the Office of Mayor Ted Wheeler. Um, humbled to be on this with these esteemed gentlemen. Um, usually the, I, I, I have a lot to learn, so what I'm responsible for now is pretty much listening. So. I come into spaces and listen and try and empower communities to be um, on behalf of the mayor to kind of determine their own destiny and determine what resources we have available to assist in that, uh, knowing that uh, it's never going to be enough. And I say that humbly, but I understand the system. So really trying to encourage change, but really here to listen and contribute where I can. And I'll, I'll keep it at that, keep it short. Next up. Mr. Jones. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is uh, Tony Jones. I'm the president of the Coalition of Black Men. We're a 30-year uh, organization that has, has a long history of advocacy and work for the Black community specifically, hence our name. Uh, brothers, James Posey on the line here, uh, were one of the founding members that stood up in 1988. And, and kind of the same topic you're talking about now, John, you know, in terms of what is the black narrative, you know, and that was the same reason that those brothers were founded back in the day. And even though I wasn't here, you know, I was, I still had uh, black hair at that point. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, but still had a fire in my belly about it with regard to what's going on in our community. Um, and part of the reason the coalition was founded was because the narrative was a false narrative that was given out uh, in the quote-unquote war on drugs, you know, crack epidemic. Uh, and these brothers, led by Lucini Perkins, Posey, uh, Lorenzo Poe, Bruce Watts, Ralph, Ralph Evans, some of those cats, um, and some of these cats that have gone before us, uh, really wanted to change the narrative and say, we are positive, productive men, and the only narrative we keep hearing is negative or a passive approach. These brothers really want to talk about a positive approach about what we're doing and what we what we have done and what we can do and what we will do. Uh, so we've done a number of things in mentoring, uh, health and wellness, uh, advocacy and economic development, um, reaching out, supporting the community, and also speaking up uh, for our people. So that's what we do. Um, as you know, John, we hail from the same part of the country, uh, New Jersey, and um, you know, right now I'm on business and I'm doing construction management and my hope is to manage our projects. 
that we do going forward so we can have more wealth in the black community. So that's my introduction. Thank you. But no, no one don't need to introduce Mr. Posey. Uh, he's been here, so he's next up on deck. How you doing there, James? Today, uh, talk to me, baby. Hey, John, thank you very much for uh, hosting this uh, podcast or uh, Zoom presentation about black men and what our, uh, you know, what our role is in this whole scenario going forward. So it's uh, good to see you able to, uh, good to see you be able to do this. You got the skill set to bring all this stuff together, you know, uh, media, the whole nine yards. And so uh, I'm thankful that you're able to do that. Uh, and it goes back, um, I, I think, way back like 20, 30, 40 years ago when we didn't have email. And, we, you know, I had, a, I had a Commodore 64. Some of these young dudes don't know what a Commodore 64 was. <laughs> a little lunchback little thing that you couldn't even type on. And it's, uh, you know, it, I, I think about the technology and how things have changed over the last uh, 40, 50 years. Uh, but unfortunately, the issues haven't changed that much. Same stuff that we were dealing with 40, 50 years ago are still uh, pretty prevalent today. You know, I'm the founder of, uh, of NAMAC, Oregon, National Association of Minority Contractors. Um, there's another person that says she founded too, but I'm a founder of the founder. <laughs> I, I like that there was another iteration of NAMAC before that person got involved and then yeah. um, MCIP and and uh, I've been involved with the uh, Coalition of Black Men from way back when, uh, you know, NAACP way back when, when NAACP was in uh, uh, over at uh, King School, uh, you know, uh, you know. So George Hendricks way back when. So I've been around the the, uh, the horn uh, a couple of times, and uh, and you know it's. Uh, really frustrating that we as black men uh, really can't come together. We can't seem to get the traction I think we ought to have. I see Johnny Lake is, is online here on base. Uh, I knew him when he had uh, black hair too way back then. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's not to make right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, oh, oh, that's just me. <laughs> that, that yeah. Yeah, I'm going to shut up and let Johnny get in. You know, he's a professor now. I, I knew him when he was barely out of kindergarten. But now he's a professor and doctor. He had friends. Hey, Johnny, what's no joke? He can run, but I'll tell you that. He can run. you to death. Yeah. So that's me, John. Go ahead, man. All right. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. Got to laugh these days, bro. Y'all got to laugh these days. I appreciate the laughter because there ain't much laughter in this real conversation going on these days. Uh, it's a luxury to see this many brothers at one time. I appreciate it. You know, we scarce around here. Um, coming to these conversations for me is always important because I think we have to have some um, control of our own destiny, I guess I'll call it that. We got to take more responsibility for uh, our decisions and 
hold each other accountable and try to move forward. Had several conversations with people, but uh, my name is Johnny Lake. I'm a um, survivor of uh, U of O uh, PhD program. Um, I've been a professor for probably 20 years now, teaching people who want to be teachers, counselors, principals. Um, but I also work a lot in the justice system. I train lawyers and judges and court systems people and all the people who got a lot of hands on our kids around equity and diversity and how bias and race and all those things actually play out in the justice system. I've uh, been doing a lot of national conferences around equity, diversity, and inclusion. That's the new code word. Uh, every generation around, they come up with some new terms that's supposed to be describing working with our communities. And right now it's DEI. They even got an acronym for it, DEI. You'll hear them throw that out and everybody in the room is supposed to know what they're talking about. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. But you can ask them, give you a clear definition of those terms and they can even define diversity, equity, and inclusion cogently. And so I think we're in a time where I call it a crisis and not a crisis in terms of a disaster like a hurricane or earthquake, but a crisis which means it's a decision point. We're at a place where we have to make some decisions and you cannot stand still in the middle of a crisis. It's like coming to the crossroads, the old blues crossroads, the four-way stop. You get at the four-way stop, you can't stop there and stay. You gotta decide which road you're gonna take. And I think that's where we are now because if we don't engage these conversations. This society is trying to go back to where it was before this virus. See, this virus came along and this virus didn't produce this inequity at all. The virus just pulled the covers off of it and just showed us how inequitable the society has been for several generations. And so at this point, putting the covers back on and going back to business as usual doesn't serve our community as well at all. And so um, I'm glad to be included in this conversation and hopefully we can continue these type of conversations because I think our persistence and our continuity over time is really one of the things that I wish we could maintain. Uh, our histories, as uh, Brother Posey was talking about, go back a while so we can all sit in the same room and talk about this effort, this governor, this legislator, this program, this is this, this, and we almost always end up in the same place. It ain't made that much difference to us. You know, Johnny Lake, man, my heart always fills with some love and joy, man. But it also fills with emotion whenever I hear you speaking, brother, and whenever I come in contact with you over the years, man. And you know, we've been warriors from way back. And, you know, and, then, and I think that that's one of the joys. But as you said, when you're coming into this, I'm glad we can laugh for a moment. Because let me tell you, just before we started this podcast, I was crying because I was looking at some stuff on CNN about the brother that got killed out in Minneapolis. And so, um, you know, and, 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 but I'm getting tired of brothers coming on the TV asking the same question over and over again. What are we supposed to do? What should we do? How should we protect our kids? What, you know, where should they play? Should, you know, and, and it got to a point, I don't want to get off script, but Johnny, you tend to take me off script, so I'm going to stay off script on this one because I want everybody to voice something here. So, you know, I asked you guys to join me here today because I have some concerns about the plight of the state of black men in America. What sparked this desire to me to, to want to speak with you all here today was watching some of the things that have been unfolding during this pandemic. 
one of the things that got my attention centered on when the, when the issue and conversation about relief funds, that they wanted to prioritize women in minority-owned businesses. And Johnny, you hit on that a little bit about that EEI. And mm-hmm. um, it made me feel very un- un- uncomfortable, like I was invisible. Here was a structure that supposedly was set up to, to serve me, and they can't even acknowledge me by specifically saying black businesses, nor, for that matter, prioritize our needs as black males, even as we still register at the top of every disparity in every category of less than that exists. Since the Civil War, the affirmative action from the Civil War era to affirmative action to diversity and now equity, I feel like a lot of other women and minority groups have been able to advance their agendas instead of actual black males, who was, for the most part, the original intent of the benefit of the civil rights and all of those things that yielded as a result of those things. Now here we are, nearly $5 trillion been dumped into our economy to, to keep things normal. And I have to wonder, where was all the money when we were talking about reparations? After all, we've been fighting for, uh, fighting the white fear of virus for centuries. The question that I have for you brothers is, since the pandemic, how have you been experiencing this and how do you feel as black, black male in your voice, how has it been represented during this time of the pandemic? So I'd like to, at any point in time, now as an order of conversation, you can, y'all can, there's a few of us, so y'all can just take turns or however you want to, you know, this is wide open and I'm gonna leave it unapologetically I'm not going to make it organized in a sense. I want to be like we are, that we talk to one another, okay? And so any one of y'all at any time on, on some of these topics, you want to jump in and have a conversation or talk about something, y'all go right ahead. But just be a little bit respectful of the airtime and, and giving others opportunities to talk and communicate. So, Johnny, you was on that conversation that during that time, but I'd like to swing it back to Posey for a second and just get his feel about how he's seen some of this stuff and then... What is his thoughts about the plight in the state of our in this country today? And what, what's going on for us during this time of pandemic? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, John, uh, you know, like I said, I've been around this stuff for a very long time. And, and we as Black people, uh, we're very articulate. We're very passionate. And when this stuff hits us, uh, you know, all of a sudden, we're going to jump out. Uh, it seems like everybody and his mothers now is... Uh, after the George Floyd thing, we, you know, it's our temperature rise. And then when it, after white people pacify us, we'll calm down and we won't see that many black matter, uh, black lives matter signs anymore. And we'll go back into the rut that white people are very comfortable in putting us in. Uh, and I, you know, I could use antidotes, uh, several years back, um, <clears throat> when, you know, I did trucking, you know, I, I've been a blue collar kind of a person. So I was doing trucking about 15 years ago and uh, the Oregon Department of Transportation never gave uh, the level of contracts to black contractors. Um, and we were just basically wiltering on the blind, on the vine. And so I, I got several black contractors together and I said to them, you know, we need to close down I-5 from Seattle 
all the way down to Sacramento. So they will know that we exist. So, I, you know, I got my truck and I was ready to go out there on I-5 and punch through the tires, let all the air out, let the police come and, and uh, you know, move us off of there. We need great national recognition. But, you know, nobody showed up but me. Mm. Hey, nobody showed up but me with my trucks. Let me just tell you, so, you know, we, we do a lot of talk, but, you know, without the sacrifice of blood, in many ways, I, I may sound figuratively or mm -hmm. literally, whatever you want to take it. White people are going to take us serious. And, and, and let me just tell you, this, uh, uh, this pandemic proves some things. White people, when you mess with their money, mm -hmm. they get upset. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I, I could give you another example. You know, uh, John, uh, you know, I was with um, Ryan Herndon and them guys and we have this big educational gap and everything. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I was over at SEI and all of them, we mm -hmm. were sitting around black men, you know, doing our macho thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I recommend it as long as we, as, as long as we're in our community and white folk are over it in the West Hills being happy and joyful about the high level of education their kids get and our kids get fifth grade, you know, degraded, uh, you know, we're, our gap is, they're going to be fine with that. They're going to give us a lot of lip service. We're going to go to school board meetings and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But so I said, why don't we take this issue up into the West Hills? Let's mm -hmm. go up there on a Saturday morning, knock on these white people's doors and ask them, are they comfortable with our black kids getting low grade education, so on, et cetera. We went up there about two weeks and everybody started getting scared. But the white people up there, they want to know what these black people up knocking on their doors on, like Jehovah Witnesses, you know. Um, so I said all that to say, at the end of the day, we do a lot of talking, but unless we were willing to throw our body against this issue, throw our minds, our body, our resources, I could go on and on and give you examples where we do a lot of talking, but at the end of the day, we're not willing to put our bodies uh, in front of this issue so people would know we're serious. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll stop there. Uh, there are other sets of circumstances I can tell you. Uh, you, you don't have to go that far. You, you, there are a few of us who, are going, who would go down to City Hall or at the uh, state legislature and talk about these okay. issues that are mm -hmm. impacting our community. All you got to do is open your mouth if you're going to talk in private. Mm -hmm. Why don't you take it down to uh, um, the legislative bodies and look at Lou Frederick up there. I beat him up about every other day. He, he don't even want to see me when I come in. But, but, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm making a little joke about it, but at the end of the day, we have to push this agenda. If we don't push this agenda, no one will, you know. And so I'll leave it with that. Yep. Cubit? Can I share on that one? Yeah, you know, I... It's hard to find. It's, it's it's hard to follow Mr. Posey, you know. He, I can only say this, you know. Even as we consider these things, what do new tools look like? Because what I've learned from the gentlemen on these calls, and I've done my own research, is that everything that has been brought up shows that these tools were never meant to have the inclusion that they are that they aim to do, and the data shows that. 
So for me, it's a conversation about what do new tools look like that actually empower instead of exploit the communities that have been exploited. All of our data points show that no matter what it is, whether it's the outcomes for health disparities, outcomes for educational attainment, outcomes for wealth building, the conduits that we have to transfer income into wealth and opportunities to even have an income don't allow individuals to live their best life as compared to their peers in this community and nationwide. Right, so it, for me, it's a constant conversation about what do new tools look like? And I don't know what that looks like, but I know that we can be informed by the individuals closest to the problems. So for me, it's empowering the individuals who are closest to the problems to actually be at the table to help change what the tools look like that allow them to use their skill set towards their own upward mobility. Because I don't believe that individuals just can't do it. And we have opportunities to create that because these are not naturally occurring phenomena. It's not like, you know, if you believe in God, it was on Moses's tablet that said you had to take out a loan in order to get this, that, or the other. These are man-made individual things that can be changed should people want to change them, or even if they shouldn't. I mean, there's a fundamental understanding that we have about how people attain things, and we say it's meritocracy, but we know it's not about hard work. You can work your entire life. It's never been about what it is about is the opportunity to transfer your hard work into something that's sustainable for your upward mobility and creating the opportunities to do that. So for me, it's a constant, constant reminder to continue to center that because as soon as I empower the individuals uh, to have that opportunity, their work ethic gets it done for them. You know, I've seen a lot of people throughout my life just work and work and work and the resulting effect of their work is not the same across the board and that's fundamentally kind of undermines what we say we believe in. So I'll, I'll keep it at that because I'm more interested in hearing what the, the tested, tried, and true gentlemen have to say in regards to that. Can I respond to that real quickly? Maybe not as quickly as I yeah, would I'll like. Tell you what, Posey. Let, let, let me respond to that, John. Go ahead, Posey. Let me respond to that, John. I was gonna drop that at Johnny's uh, lap. Let, let, let me respond to that real quickly. Let me respond to that real quickly. Tools, private, equity funds, well, let me repeat that, private equity funds, which black people don't know a thing about in the, in the lion's share, white people making money hand over foot. Your boss, Ted Willer, was the treasurer uh, back many moons ago. He ran private equity funds for the city of Portland. Money went out to everybody all these white firms making money, which fueled the gentrification, which is, which is in our community. Black people didn't even know about it. They were so busy trying to dodge redlining. Uh, that's on the negative, that's on the defenses, but on the offensive piece, your boss, Ted Willer, was the treasurer back in that day. Uh, we didn't have any black fat, uh, private equity funds. And you look all the cover back and you look at all the gentrification and where all the money is flowing, it's flowing through some of these tools, these instruments that white people use every day without even thinking about. We're not even anywhere close to that market. Fortunately, I'm involved with a guy, you all know Opio. Opio is running a private equity fund right now that is black owned, and reinvesting back in black businesses, trying to get black businesses uh, uh, linked to some of these huge amounts of money trying to fund those projects that are really generic to what black people do. I'm just finding out about it. But I'm telling you, you as a young cat, 
you should be in a position to be able to talk about that leg. There's only one leg and tool that we have within our community uh, uh, that's available to us now that I didn't even know anything about it. I sit 20 years in the, in, in, the, in the seat of a dump truck hauling dirt across the city thinking that's gonna make me some money when these white mm. cats are making money hand over foot by moving their pencil from one spot to another. That's the sort of thing as a community, we have to grasp where the money is really going, who's getting it, and how can we get our, our piece at the table. I'll, yeah, I'll shut up. That. Uh, Johnny, you, you care to want to share, share on that one? Uh, yeah, I appreciate all the comments. I think, as I said, we're looking at a crossroads um, and there's opportunities when there's this kind of um, change in our culture and society. Um, we are realigning certain things. Um, I think the, um, the consideration of tools made me think about how the rules change when we get involved in the game. And this goes to what uh, Mr. Posey was saying. Um, gentrification, I watched it happen in Portland. I was interviewing black elders in Northeast Portland prior to gentrification. Their houses weren't worth anything. They couldn't get that money to do that, redo their houses. One black man told me, he says, when I moved on this street, everybody on this street was black and there was one white family. He said, I'm the only black family left on this street. And he said, oh, those young people across the street, they got that house. And he said, they got that money from that uh, reinvestment downtown and they are uh, able to fix their house up. He says, I couldn't get none of that money. And so the way gentrification happened, I didn't see a white person on Mississippi Street when I used to take those elders over there to eat. I always took them on Mississippi Street to eat. And I, we didn't see a white person. And I went back five years later to redo my interviews and to close out the project. And we went to Mississippi Street and I did, me and Mr. Cheney, an older black man, we didn't see another black person on Mississippi Street. Everybody was white. And every house I looked at that was for sale was for sale by a white real estate agent. And so when we think about tools, where were those tools when we owned that property? Where were those tools when it was our community? And so when we look at the structural problems, the system leverages those resources and those tools toward the people that they want to. And if the young brother is inside the room with these people, then we have to be included in those decision-making processes. There were houses over there uh, Bubba, that the people, the house was worth $150,000 when I met a couple of those people. And then the cheapest house you could touch over there after gentrification was $450,000. Same houses. All they did was came in, did the yard, painted, maybe did the roof, and tripled the value of those houses over there. And that money did not go into our community, which is where it should have gone if gentrification was done without race being a factor. Mississippi Street over there, the history, Mississippi Street died when they put the freeway through there. There were more businesses in Portland in 1959, black businesses in Portland in 1959 than there are right now. And when they put that freeway through there, they did not put an exit on Mississippi Street. And for the young brother who's in the room that's making those kind of decisions now so that they decide to fly right over our community and kill all those businesses on Mississippi Street, and enrich the people farther up or farther down. And so I think learning these 
games, like I told my mother, I said, dealing with white people, I said, as soon as you learn the rules, they change the rules. Absolutely. As soon as you learn the rules, as soon as you start being competitive, they change the rules. And we got to be that flexible ourselves when we are engaged in these conversations. Because, like, uh, I was told getting a PhD is, you know, the ultimate. Uh, getting a PhD, I'm technically unemployable with most of these crazy white people that I have to deal with here in Oregon because I tell them the truth. You should have came to me. I would have told you that, bro. I got a master's, but I knew after that. I really went on <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. No, I, I get more work. I get, I get more work in New York, in New York, and uh, and back east, uh, state of Washington, uh, California. I get work everywhere except here in Oregon. Yeah. And fortunately, I'm pretty good at what I do, so I have a pretty good catalog of work, so I don't have to worry about getting work. Yeah, but it speaks to the nature of the isolation and exclusion that a brother gets here when you dare to show up to the room and, and tell them the truth and be honest about the way this game works. If you kiss their behind and stay in their corner, they use you against another brother who is showing up, and you may get something, but your community gets left out of the deal. Yes, and classic, so, classic stuff. So that, that, yeah. Do you want to weigh in on that one? Oh, I got a lot I can say. <laughs> yeah, um, I think um, I was asked to participate in uh, the debate from the organization of James Founds, named Mac Oregon. And I made everybody laugh in the room, but it wasn't really funny. You know, I said, my question to the mayoral candidates was, Black community's been in a damn pandemic. Everyone thought that was funny, but I didn't think it was funny. Mm. Our people are dying. Mm. Um, we're genocide now. Mm. That's what's happening. We've, we've stepped to a new level. You know, when our folks are, you know, living like I had to argue with my brother-in-law, my folks are living in close proximity in New York and they're working in these low-wage jobs. We're in close proximity to each other and not getting paid living wage. And there's a, there's a, uh, as, as my uh, esteemed brother from church, Dr. Robert Hughley says, we got a daggone plague going on um, and our people are dying. It's a serious issue. So my comment, you know, so it's funny, James, that, that question got axed from the list because it was me, Tony Jones, James, too militant. <laughs> um, um, but that's really what I felt in my heart when I think about what's going on now. And um, the sad thing is, you know, it's been no change. And um, as we've all talked, many of us, we've all touched on it. Well, I try to work by the rules. I try to work within the system. You know, we, you know, many of us are spiritually based. And so we, you know, we try to be, honorable and decent and upstanding and 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 right i'm not saying you, you should be a daggone crook but you know you felt like if you lived your life that way that you know the benefits would flow to our people which is what we wanted to see and that didn't necessarily happen not not necessarily that hasn't happened heck man we can't even go out for a jog can't even walk down the street without getting killed more or less just harassed by the police and getting killed. So um, 
as we all know, as you all talked about, this is serious, very serious, and it's um, it saddens me to the core. I mean, I went walked out of my house the other day, pissed off about the 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 brother in Central Park, only to have a white guy stop me to to uh, apologize because about the brother in Minnesota, which you know just kind of just brought me to my knees almost in walking down um, Going Street. So, yeah, it's a it's a plague for us. It's not just a pandemic, you know, in terms of what it's doing to our community. Well, that, that, that's there, but I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Were you were you coming to your end on that conclusion on that, or would you? Yeah, let me. Yeah, I can conclude on that because I really think that we have to talk about it in that gravity of a situation. You know, when we're talking to white folks. Um, as James was saying, pretty much died. But what I will close on is what James touched on is I've come to the conclusion, man, is that we can't work with these folks. We got to build our own economics. We got to own some assets. We got to own some wealth. We got to own some property. We got to make some money. And then we take the money and do for our people what, need, what needs to be done. Not money just to put in your pocket, but money to, so you can develop programs for at-risk kids so you can develop things that you think that your employees need so you can develop you know support your family with health care if you're an employer we have to control the wealth so we can do what we need for our community gotcha now I, i'm i'm seeing some things here so i'm going to probably change up a little bit of script to, to, to create a little bit of agitation because you know that's that clinical nature in me mm-hmm. but um, but I got a question because uh, I observed Cupid, and I, I, I specifically invited him to this conversation, knowing that he was a little younger than the other uh, members that were here. And so, Cupid, when you talked about new tools, what can you talk a little bit more about new tools? You're waiting on new tools. Is are you saying you want new tools to address the issue, or are you tired of hearing about the old stuff from the old people? from us old men or from our you know, community about the limitations we have versus moving forward. Is there some, right. could you speak a little bit more about what you're trying to say? So, you know, I would, I would never say that I'm tired of old tools or old people, or I wouldn't call anyone old um, because I understand that the only way that I can learn is to learn what was done. And John, you and I were talking about this. People are constantly saying that I wasn't here, it was the past, yet we constantly celebrate the past, 4th of July. Our legal system is based off precedent, things that happened in the past. So for me to move forward, to understand what's failing us, I have to understand how it failed us. And when I'm talking about new tools, it's because these tools are made by people. I was going in about opportunity zones, right? And I'm sure you all are familiar with opportunity zones. The reason why I disagreed with opportunity zones and I brought this up in our office, and I brought it up to like Crawford Portland and things like that, is because in order for an investment to drive into an opportunity zone, first of all, it has to be 50% or more um, individuals who are making 80% MFI, median family income, or less. And then you have to have capital gains. So individuals in that neighborhood cannot invest in their own neighborhood, and that's a tool we have right now. So I'm seeing like tools like that that don't allow you to invest in your own neighborhood do us no good and it creates a perpetuation of you needing to be poor in order to receive assistance. 
And so when I'm looking at things like that, that's all based off the information I've learned from individuals like this on this call. And I know I have so much further to go because I did the whole school thing. I worked for HUD for 12 years. I got two masters, one in real estate development. I serve on national board. And yet and still, these issues that you all are talking about and can say we had the same conversation when we were your age about the same things tells me so much more than I can describe. So when I'm talking about new tools, I'm talking about thinking outside the box in a way that allows me to understand how these tools are used and to suggest a new one, right? So a, a common example of one that has had some success is when we were talking about land trust models. It doesn't work for everybody, but it allows you to build some sort of equity. And that was brought on by black farmers, right? And so even though the traditional market with all of the reasons we know why, when you have Central City 2035, Central City 2050, where you're being planned out, if you're not at the table, of course, you know you're on the menu. So it's so many multi-level conversations that need to be had when the assessment of value is created on a system that never included you in the first place. So as we think about what new tools look like, I'm, I'm exploring every single possibility because there is an economic system and the economic system for me is based, it's, I, I tell people it's fake. And the reason why it's fake is based off confidence, right? The stock market is based off confidence, not necessarily supply and demand all the time. And for the younger generation, we're having to have a conversation right now because you can feel that anxiety of uh, the elimination of opportunities versus a mentality that says, how do I create opportunities? And so when I'm talking about new tools, it takes into consideration everything that came before me because our system is set up off of precedent. And when I'm determining like what new tools are, new tools are outside of the box that we exist in. And when you work in city government, sometimes you're not the best position to create that because your job is predicated on the system that you're in. And I recognize that, which is why I said, this has to be led and empowered by the community. Well, so then, but just, just, just remember, as we move into work, we're going to stay in these weeds for sure. just a minute, but, you know, we're going to try to make our way sure, out sure, of sure, sure, some sure. kind of uh, what it's going to look like after this, when we come back to quote unquote normal. So yeah, uh, I just want to say that uh, uh, this young man, I'm very impressed with his uh, uh, insights beyond what they tell him because that's, he really is, uh, really scoped it pretty well. Uh, the game is not the game that we think it is. The game is very, very different. And unless you're inside, unless you're at the table, or you're behind the scenes and you're working these deals and you see what, what the real deal is, we never, we never get to see that. I can, I can tell you for a fact, I was just working in construction, uh, you know, you never see what the real numbers is, where you make profit and how you move the agenda and so forth until you at the table. We had to have a white boy who worked for us go in and show us what the game is. You know, I've mentioned his name. You guys probably know him, but he comes back and tells us, oh, y'all was way out there. Y'all were nowhere close to bringing home this deal because we're not at the table. We're not a part of that inner circle, as it were. But let me just say to you, uh, Cupid, um, I, I think you're, you're on the right track. We have to find ways within the existing system to use it to really get what they don't think we ought to get, uh, if that makes any sense to you. At the end of the day, these opportunity zones were created to do some good stuff. But 
they've manipulated them, they've made them, and we're we're sitting here quiet as a church mouse, not having an end product to be able to take advantage of those opportunity zones, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're lambs to the slaughter, as it were, uh, financially and so forth. So I say to you, um, when you're looking at these systems and you see where they're going and where they're not going, uh, you know, share with the rest of us so we can weigh in and we can help change policy, we can change direction, or we can put provisions in. Let me just give you an example. On the I-5 project that they're talking about and, you know, all the black gentrification and so forth that's happened on the I-5 project, the city is really not at the table. I know you think y'all are, but y'all really not at the table. The decision is going to be made by ODOT, a billion with a capital B that's going to be made on that project. Do you know in the specifications for the recruitment of the general contractor on there, there is no talk about equity per se. It's a general thing. And they know that that whole uh, I-5 corridor was gentrified by, you know, against black people and Prosper Portland's talking about all this black stuff, how we've been screwed and everything. But unless those documents, those construction documents, those legal documents about what the outcomes are going to be, we're going to be doing the same. I want to, I want to cuss on this thing here. Johnson. John's got tender ears, so I don't want to cuss on it. But the deal is going to be the same. Uh, because the white boy is going to get immediately the signal that we all, oh, they talking the good stuff, but at, at, we know we're going to circumvent this thing. And so the game rushes on. This becomes a monopoly game, back and forth, back and forth. And we wind up all frustrated and, you know, everybody takes home the big, uh, you know, the big profits and so forth. And we'll be here holding, uh, you know, holding the back. Cities involved in this. Because let me just explain to you. People already know this. ODOT does construction, and they're going to do construction. Hmm. They ain't into equity. They don't care nothing about no equity. The city where the majority of us live, and we have our being in the heart of this urban environment, are going to suffer the consequences of us not directing ODOT to spend that money where it ought to be. Take advantage of the stuff. This is how you do reparations without doing reparations redirecting that money, make sure that it's accountable for what the growth and development of what our community needs to be and make it work the way it's supposed to work. So right. no, yeah. I, I'll leave it alone. Go ahead, about that. Hey, but in this one, not unless somebody got a pressing that they want to make a contrib uh, contribution to this, I want to turn this a second. And I want to ask a, a basic pertinent question now that I've why do you believe America has such a black male fear? What is the fear that America has of the black male, and why do you perceive that exists? Any one of y'all can jump on that. Is do you perceive that America has the fear, have a fear of the black male? Listen, I'd like to hear from the professor. Well, I'm going to say this one quick thing. Ron Wyden held a business meeting for people yesterday. Listen, listen to me on this. He had it for for minority business. Ron Wyden, the congressional delegation. Check, check this out. He had Nikenye, who I like, who's a pretty decent person, but it was about small business, minority business, but they put a black woman up there to facilitate this meeting. White boy, Ron Whiten, knows what he's doing. Uh, 
he couldn't find a legitimate black business person to host a black event that is uh, basically participated by a hundred people. But the prototype for us is a black woman who runs a nonprofit, not even a business. I ain't got nothing against nonprofit. Don't get me wrong on that. Wasn't even a business. A black businessman could have been there. Who, who exemplifies in our community the black businessmen? You understand what I'm saying to you all? They're trying to relegate black men down to nothing. And people who have power to do that, i.e. a Ron Wyden, i.e. a Merkley or a Blumenauer, all the rest of these white guys, want to make sure that black men doesn't rise to the top to be able to represent our people. That's my opinion. Shut up, Thank James Foley. That, 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 that was real, and I do appreciate that. Uh, it, it just continues to uh, reverse some other stuff that goes into the invisible man. And I did remember you posted something on Facebook one time about that brother who, uh, who has a similar name of Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, who wrote that piece on the invisible man. Uh, what's his name? Ralph Ellison. Uh, Ralph Ellison. Right, right. And uh, he continues that. He, he started that discussion. I'm sure there's more than that. But this whole notion about the invisible man or black male fear. Johnny, can you sort of scope that a little bit for me, man, and, and, and tell us a little bit about what your perception of that is all about and, and how do we move beyond it or some suggestions and thoughts about it? Just frame it for me, will you please? It's um, rather complex. Um, because it's a combination of race and gender and class. If you think of what America was defined around, the founding fathers were white males with money, property, and power. This is the definition of the American, mm -hmm. the American. Every one of these privileges was only a privilege because it was defined in contrast to the people who did not have these privileges. So being a woman naturally meant you were disadvantaged. You got born, whoop, you ain't done nothing. You automatically disadvantaged. You born as a person of color in this system, you ain't done nothing to gain privilege or lose privilege, but you automatically disadvantaged. And so every privilege is related to an unprivileged. So white supremacy depends on black failure. The boy said, the white man says he's so afraid of the black man in America because the black man is incompetent. But the boy said that is not true. He said, a white man is so afraid of the black man in America because he knows that the black man is competent. And so given a fair opportunity, I think that that's the reason for racism. That's the reason for these barriers. That's the reason they had a rule during slavery that a black man could not have a stick in his hand. That if a black man had a stick in his hand and a white man told him to drop it, he had to drop it or the white man could kill him and would not be charged with any kind of crime of murder. That's still going on. And like the historian told me, he says, there must have been some brothers doing some bad things to white people with some sticks. <laughs> for them to have to come up with a rule that deprived a black man of the opportunity to hold a stick. Now, exactly. if, you, if you transfer that to business or politics or housing, all of that stuff, all those rules that were developed to keep us out wasn't developed to keep us out because we were incompetent or could not perform. It was leveraged to leverage the advantage to the white people. And so for the fear, when I first got to Oregon, there was no black men in the Capitol. Bubba, you remember this. Every legislator down there was a, a, of color was a black female. Right. And one of, one of my friends came from back east and he 
asked me something that I hadn't thought about until he asked me. He said, where's the strong black man in this state? He says, every agency we go in, anybody who's in any position of authority and power of color is a woman. And I started looking there and it's like, you can't find them. A strong brother don't last in these uh, mm. settings. Mm. And it's because we are, if you think of gender and race as two points of competition in this society, gender and race, gender and race, gender and race. So President Bush, in order to counter the issues of race and gender, brought in um, Condoleezza Rice. If Condoleezza Rice didn't have a brain in her head, she served the purpose that white man needed her for, which was to counter any claims about racism or sexism. And she played her role very, very well. That's why she's still to this day considered successful in the way she played her cards Absolutely. with this man who didn't serve our community very well at all. And so if you come forward and look at how we are seeing these things play out now, bringing us in the room actually is probably the ultimate challenge. Bringing us in the room and to have to address not only the issues about race, but also the issues about gender. Uh, we are competitors. And so when we think about the fear thing, it's like the women, I think there's been two or three women who call the police on black men recently in the last couple yeah. of weeks. Mm -hmm. at, least two, at least two. How, how did they know that that would work? Hmm. I mean, how, can, how institutionalized is this issue of the fear of black men if a random white woman knows that she can just pick up the phone and act scared and please immediately send the police and know that they're going to come with their guns out and target this black man? We can blame so that's why, that's why I say it's complex. Yeah, for, our for our discussion here, I think we are competitive. Yeah, we are Capable. And we, in the in the history John, of our we can blame John's profession, we can blame the media on that. John John's profession. Well, the media is one of the tools. But but back to the young brother's points, um, we are able to compete in these rooms. You know, when you cite your education, and your experience, and things like that, I guarantee you, that's probably not a white boy running around there in Portland who got your background. You know, and so the ability to make that space for people like you to do this work is really important. We can infiltrate these systems and we can cause them to work. When we show up, I used to show up at the Capitol. Uh, Bubba remember this. And if three of us went in the Capitol, I think you might've been you with me that day. Three of us went <laughs> in the Capitol. How many security did we have to talk to before we could get into where we was going? <laughs> we were in the Capitol the moment we got in that door. Now, I always used to say, well, imagine 20 of us brothers going down there or wherever. If it's your department there in the city, bro, imagine 20 of us showing up. We don't have to have but one brother talk. The rest of us don't have to say nothing. We can have one brother say we represent the community and we want to know what's happening here and how can we participate in this conversation. And so I think when you say new tools, I think there's some ways we can work these tools that exist, as you described, and give us more opportunity for access. Hey, John, I just want to say one word uh, on your question, and really the one word answer, there's two words maybe, but, but capitalism, you know, white men are driven by capitalism, period. 
you know, and so they're going to knock out any competition that, to their money. Yep. They even knock out their damn selves. But they know that the true narrative of the black man, if it comes through, it, it's pretty harrowing. So they'll do anything to not have that narrative on top of our ability outshine them. They'll do anything, which they have. You know, paint bad movies about us, pictures. You know what? Why women making these calls? Well, all the, what they what they see on TV, how it portrayed. So um, it's all driven by capitalism. So yeah, I, I agree with that one hundred percent. And you know, if I had the time and the wherewithal to be able to do it, I would go through this last election, and I would see who supported who, and I would put dollar increments on what those value propositions were relative to them. And you could tell a story. You could write a, uh, you could write a, 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 a narrative on, on, on how this election went based upon who put the dollars in on what campaign and what, uh, who, who they supported. I, I wish I was smart enough to be able to be able to do that. But at the, at, at, that's the sort of sophistication and tools we need as black people to see not only where we're going, but to know what the future, I mean, what the, what the past has been and how do, we, how do we navigate through a future system with that. Those are the sort of tools that, we're, that are absent in our community. White people are doing this already. That whole, uh, they have a uh, autopsy, as they call it, on this whole election. They've counted all the numbers. They know exactly who did what, when, where, and how, and they can predict what the what the election's gonna look like uh you know in August and in uh, November. We're not there. You follow me? Does that make any sense to you all? Maybe I'm talking to myself. No, I feel you. John John to 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 kind of give a different perspective uh, along the same lines, you know, I think it's unique when black men come into spaces and they can meet you at an intellectual, physical and and uh, uh, just a technological understanding. And when the whole premise of your argument has been based on they cannot do those things, it changes the conversation. And as we've held on to that belief that has been untrue, it makes people uncomfortable. So when I, when I see individuals come in, it makes me proud, understanding that we have a whole system that was falsely based on your inability to do that. And then when you clearly and unapologetically come in having that skill set, People don't know how to react when they're talking to a system that has empowered them based on a false pretense, right? And my, my whole understanding of it is like, we owe these things to people because they pay taxes. They pay taxes, right? The whole shift of wealth has happened as a result as an investment that disadvantaged them per the taxes that they were paying or the work that they were unpaid for, not because of their effort, and so when they have an understanding of not only how the tools work, but they have a generational understanding of how we got there, and then they have an understanding of how what new tools would look like, it changes that dynamic that doesn't advantage someone to your disadvantage. And when you have no concept of understanding how that would work for you, it scares you. And so I clearly see, and especially, you know, intergenerationally that there are people who are skilled beyond what they're capable of indicating. They've always been able to understand. It's like knowing several languages and they didn't know that they knew several languages. We have policy experts that don't even know that they're policy experts. They're required to understand 
deeply like Mr. Posey, how these systems overlappingly work and where the pivot points are to create opportunity that creates the income that then transfers into wealth if invested correctly. So it's, it's weird for me because when I'm in these rooms and we're having these conversations, I'm like, we're a minority as a result of a numerical assessment. And that's it. We're just outnumbered. Once you get that understanding, they, it makes people scared, again, when we're just, when the premise is that you're not good enough, and then you show that not only do you know the tools better, you're required to know them intricately just to scratch, just to scratch out a living. And that's not even an assessment of like what your real skill set is worth. So that's kind of my response okay. to that. But here's my, here's my, here's my next move with this, because you know, and, and I, I look at Cupid and I see Cupid, I see myself, I see Johnny, I see James, I see, I see Mr. Jones the whole way in Cupid as we were in that time coming through that range, coming through that field, coming through that path, that courage, that ability as a young person, in spite of the ceiling that has been placed on you, you still push beyond it and push through it. But what is that substance, okay? And so what I'd like to do is as we transition, and I know we're running up on, on our time, is that... Here we are. We've been here, as Posey said earlier, none of us, the scab has been peeled off. We're in the midst of this. We see the dog loose off the chain. You see, we see him running around, biting us, killing us, destroying us, all of that. And then they talk about coming back and being back to normal. So what is y'all's vision as what business as usual and normal should look like for us? What is that ideal that we have coming out of this of what we don't want to go back to and what we see as the next step to begin to address some of these concerns and needs we have as a community and as a black man? Not so much as all the other stuff, but more so about what we're trying to achieve and accomplish and what we don't want to continue to happen to us. So y'all elaborate a little bit on that. Anyone y'all can step up on that voice. And then keep in mind when you address that, is that this conversation about the governor's office about this $2.5 billion, if it was uh, able to be placed in a strategic way, how would you see us using that money to begin to rectify some of these, these issues that we have been historically dealing with? Well, I think it boils down to black self-determination. Really, it really boils down to the, um, we controlling our destiny, we controlling our assets, really our, our attitude, about uh, our own self-worth for starters, and then that we are worthy uh, and is due us and uh, that, we, that we should have the assets and resources we have to need to take care of ourselves. So when you mentioned the dollar amount, for me, it's kind of like what Posey touched on. You know, I really, my mindset now is probably twofold. One sort of the, um, economic education of our people about money and, and how to use it to do, do the right things, not just to pocket it. And then the other part is to make investments with black business owners um, that give a damn, you know, that really will be about hiring our people and putting them to work. And there's examples out there right in our community that people are doing it. Um, and instead of just asking for well, the data for COVID, which I get it, and I, but really, like you said, we want one billion of that dollar 
to invest in these number of properties and have the outcome of these number of jobs for people and this number of homes that they're actually going to own. That's what I want to see. So let me weigh in. And, uh, you know, uh, for me, it's about a plan. It's about a master plan. You know, I, I'm looking at Cupid here. You know, we're fortunate to have a brother that can put all this stuff together. But in a Chicago or Atlanta, we got nine or 10 Cupids running around there, you know, with the same capabilities or ability to do that. We got one, maybe two Cupids running around here. But we don't have a, we don't have a plan. And, you know, we're, we're divided by various factions in our community. They played us so well. We got people out here who purported to be doing one thing, they're doing something else. But, but there is no uh, cohesive agenda for us to look at as a roadmap for changing the dynamics in our community. If I had, if I was God, I could go ahead and take my magic wand and hit it over Cuba's head, I'd make him mayor of black Portland. You know, I'd bam, hit him, uh, give him the wherewithal, the powers to engage, to use a Johnny Lake and all the, you know, I mean, I've tried to engage our, our, our educational system. You know, it's over there and all this intellectual stuff they got over there and books sitting on the shelf and, and crap. Uh, weigh that in along with the data, put together a plan systematically how we get out of this thing. Uh, bring the political forces to bear to make the, the dynamics occur in our community where we're not just talking this stuff, but we're actually implementing a plan that really is calculated to achieve results. Not to be, you know, most of the stuff we do now is just political sideway or, or, or kind of garbage in which we're just trying to get through to the next election or the next program. But at the end of the day, if you want a house built, you have to have a plan. You have to have specifics in the plan. You have to dialogue what the plan is, and then you got to get about building the house. You cannot sit on the sideline and have a nice, pretty conversation about the house you want. You have to make it happen, and you have to make it happen incrementally, and then you have to make put the investments in it to make it work. So that's what I think we're missing in our community is a plan that will bring these various resources together and orchestrate a process by which we can improve ourselves. That's not that hard. That's just common sense, y'all. Thank you, James, on that. Nate? Um, the miners used to take a canary in the mine shaft with them because the canary has a weaker respiratory system. When the canary dies, they knew it was time to get out of there. I think what COVID has done is shown who the canaries are in our society and the people who are dying the quickest and the most special needs people. I've been talking to some of them. They said, try to find some instructions for uh, disabled people about how to be healthy during this COVID uh, crisis. They said, there ain't none. And so uh, it's exposed again, the flaws in our society that um, disadvantages the weakest and most vulnerable parts of our society to put this back together, those needs are gonna have to be addressed. Healthcare, for instance, you cannot solve a pandemic with everybody unless everybody has access to some kind of healthcare in order to even be healthy. 
and it's exposed the lack of uh, insurance and jobs. I mean, decent jobs that pay somebody enough money to actually live. Uh, $1,200 a month. I asked several families, how long would that last you? One month. And they're back in the same hole they were in. And so the, at the corporate or structural level of our society, we have to start realizing what is the responsibility of government to its citizens in terms of uh, living wage jobs, uh, health care, health insurance, um, not letting people be exploited in their housing or living situations because you got Section 8 people. There's one, I got a call from Portland. She's paying $3,000 a month and said the house smells like pee. There's leftover stuff from the previous tenant and they don't even want to uh, change the carpet. And this money comes from the government into the pocket of some investor or some financer who owns that house this poor woman everybody gonna blame her for being a section 8 recipient and she's basically just getting pimped by somebody else who's getting that money and she's glad to get a house so she's willing to take any kind of house she can get and so i think um probably in accord with mr posey any plan needs to hold accountable the um structures and institutions see there is a responsibility government has to its citizens and not just the ones who have the money they probably have more responsibility to the more vulnerable citizens and so when we look at what has been revealed the solution is to address the failures that i think are not new as i said these are historical failures of our communities to help support all of its citizens those are some of the things that i think our communities need to be at the table in these conversations. The education game is pulled, covers pulled off of it. I am so sick of educators. I mean, we've been closing the achievement gap ever since I've been in Oregon and we ain't closed no achievement gap at all. And they still want to talk about diversity training and uh, these teachers. I said, these teachers didn't have relationships with our kids when they had them in school five days a week. So how in the hell you think they're going to have relationships with them now and they go on a computer or call them on the phone? Well, this and so when we, when we, when we come back, are we gonna allow teachers to fall right back into the same pattern of ignoring our children and not building responsible relationships with them so they can meet their needs? We act like that's something new. It's not new. And so the same expectations I think go for all of the structural, uh, the governmental organizations. We have to be in the room and we have to call these people to account. And we do need to have a plan in accord with Mr. Posey. Thank you very much, Dr. Lake. Uh, Mr. Jones, you got anything you want to share? No, I mean, I think I spoke in the beginning and I, man, um, yeah, one thing I would say about the plan that James touched on in the beginning, and I think that's where we as humans struggle and particularly as it impacts our black community, impacts deeply. It's something I struggle with, to be quite honest with you, man, is you got to lay your life on the line for this. You just got to. It's yeah. the only way it's going to happen. Yeah, you're going to have to give up something that's dear and precious to you to to move from point A to point B, just to get to move from point A to point B. So part of the plan has to be, you know, that activist plan. And and as you in the beginning of the meeting, John, you talked about warriors and soldiers and what have you. Um, that's what it takes. It really takes warriors and soldiers on the front line as part of that plan to be out there no matter what happens that they hold their position 
Um, and that's that I think that's part of the key for plan being successful. And we got to have the plan for us. I'm just tired of going to Ted Wheeler, period, because he ain't going to do shit. He don't care. He says he cares, but he's part of the system. We've got to care to make our own system. That's it. So let me say one quick thing, Don. Let me say this one quick thing. Uh, some of the stuff that Tony's talking about is spiritual. And y'all might not want to hear this, but at the end of the day, how many cars can you drive? How many pairs of shoes can you wear? How many houses can you live in? Uh, how many good look haircuts can you get? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just saying, you know, this stuff is mere materialistic bullshit in mm -hmm. terms of what our value propositions are in our community. We have to make a decision that we want our community and what white people don't fail to understand is if we live better as black people, they will live better. We're the parameters about, about how life exists on this planet. Because if we're living okay, everybody and their mama will be living okay. They don't get that. So they should invest in us and we should make them invest in us. And we should pressure them to understand that the very existence, their very su survival on this and it's contingent on our survival and how we, uh, how we navigate this system in America. America is crazy to do what they're doing. And let me tell you, when you cut through all this stuff, pandemic and all the other stuff, it's about the hatred they have for black people and their unwillingness to accept us, accept us as human beings, uh, 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 as God's creatures. And that's why I say it's spiritual because we are God's creatures. And do to the least of them your brother. Thank you very much, James. Here's, here's, here's one point I'd like to throw in. Collectivist, culture, collectivist cultures versus individualistic cultures. America, we talked about meritocracy, individualism, all of those things are the dominant culture themes of American society. Those were never parts of our community. Collectivism is more the way our communities have worked and in line with what well, Mr. Posey is talking about, claiming all of the resources and all the money for ourselves is really not an ethic that our communities have been able to sustain. We have always had to reach out to our brothers and sisters. We are, within our own families, we've always had to help each other. And that model of community is foreign to dominant culture. And so we have to keep in mind, we are a different culture than dominant culture and not necessarily in competition with each other as much as trying to help each other to achieve. Right, John, and I don't know if you, if you wanted my response, but uh, sure, I, sure. I thought it was, I thought, I'm sorry if I didn't get to you. It's okay, I was, I was, I was listening first and, and speaking second. Um, so I, I think it's important, you know, I, I second everything the gentlemen have said. Of course, their experience is something and their intelligence that has to be respected. Um, and at the same time, I know that sometimes there's just generational divides as to how we think about things. So I know that some of the things that are on you all's radar are just not on young men's radars. They're just, it, they, it just isn't. It's, it's, they're not thinking about these things in the same way. They're not seeing themselves in the same way. And you know, there's a culture that allows who they are to be defined by someone who's not them. 
um, and determining what success looks like and what freedom is um, has always been a hard conversation. So in kind of ending this, I think there needs to be more intentional conversations like this intergenerationally where hard questions are asked just so the information can be exchanged so we can build these pipeline legacies. Because if I'm not asking you, I'm not learning that you had that same conversation to the same T per the same words 25 years ago. Same. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for us, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, I, I don't, I don't really have anything to add other than a, a, a unique desire to continue to, have and cultivate this space where it's like okay we don't have to agree but discrimination agrees completely right it doesn't it doesn't just like the 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 most equalizing factor that we have is discrimination taxes and death right it doesn't doesn't discriminate against you in the same way uh it's it's a it's a unique thing so that would be the the only thing other than that you know we recognize the systems the intent of the systems hasn't been to center your success um, but how do we change that? What do new tools look like? And how do we continue to have these intentional front-end conversations? And a conversation not about reparations, because that's a different conversation. Uh, a reconciliation conversation, knowing that unless the conversation about reparations includes a number that's uniquely, uniquely more extensive than what can be even imagined and creates a, a basis for which that's funded, then all of these are conversations about reconciliation knowing that these individuals are full, complicated human beings where the uniting factor was discrimination, but they're unique and they weren't seen as such. So that, that's all I got to say. Thank it you took, for that. It took, thank you very much, Keith. It took a special set of circumstances to get us here, and it's going to take a special set of circumstances to get us beyond here. I think this, and as I conclude this conversation, I want to tell you, you brothers, with humble and, and, and being as gracious as I can be toward the four of you who showed up in this podcast today, man, my heart really goes out to you all. But here's one thing that I struggle with on a daily basis. When I hear one, one of my black people living next to me or somewhere else say to me, the man comes in their backyard, hurts their child, leaves, and then that man who owns that home, who is a black man, who owns, who is a part of that child, asked the question, what are we supposed to do is the day that I stop feeling. Hmm. And the realization for me is, is that at some point in time, when you look at the history of, these, of, of our civilization, the Irish and the Italians came here just like everybody else. And in the lower streets of Manhattan, they fought like animals behind what was valuable and what wasn't. They killed each other on the street. And that every other culture who came in contact with some kind of some type of behavior as this had always stood fast to defend themselves against the adversary. Now I'm tired of y'all. I, I pulled this together, but I'm not tired of y'all, but I'm tired of this old dialogue. Is is that we can constantly celebrate or go into ceremony about the death of one of our soldiers killed in the line of duty, simply being black. Hey man, I'm not okay with that no more. I'm not okay with the realization that we have to succumb to some kind of conversation about that. If you hurt my child in my backyard, then I got a right to defend myself and my child. 
And as a result of this, I am sick and tired. And there used to be all of these kinds of situations back in the day when we had defense things. When back in New Jersey, I don't know if you remember this time, not only did we have the Black Panthers, but we all always had the Masonic, the Order, the, uh, the, not the Masons, but a Farrakhan. And they would train us and they would line us up in the streets and we would march. And we would go and be wherever the epicenter of white people who were hurting black people, we would show up in force. And they would know rather or not if they want to continue doing what it is. But we were trained from young people to defend our communities. I believe that element is, is missing in us. And all of this pacifist conversation, I'm just at my end's wit because I don't want to bury another son of mine. Not another one. And so with that said, my brothers, I, I do appreciate y'all so much more. I'm sure there's so much more that we can probably glean out of this conversation and to continue it. And I just was just hoping that, that this is the start of something for us to begin to somehow, as Tony, Tony said, begin to self-determine, get us in the direct, go into where we want to go collectively out of body. I don't care so much about the personalities that are driving on this train, but I want to make sure that the principles in which we live by, we all to some degree adhere to and support in one another and get behind one another and continue to move forward. We are not invisible. In fact, Michael Jordan, uh, myself, anybody else, they, I can tell you when there are 55 million people looking at it, when they click that damn TV on, we're not invisible. But the question still remains is, how do we find some self-significance within the climate in which we exist in to keep us strong and to support one another to stay within the game? As, as a Mr. Lake, when I remember meeting a Mr. Lake, Mr. Lake struggled for a little bit in this, but he grasped hold of a direction and with the support and fortitude in which he got grasped, I watched that man scale mountains that were beyond my wildest imagination in a short period of time. The posies that are in the fights, the, the Cupids. So my brothers, I am so grateful and honored to have your company and, and your time here on Black Beat today. And man, anything that we can do as a company, as an organization to support the overall agenda, then let's get busy with it. I would expect to see you brothers at the table from here on out, making sure that the destination of this money that's supposed to support our community gets to our community. And it's gonna be us that's gonna help do that. So gentlemen, uh, without further ado, I know you guys have been on here a little bit past our time, but man, I love the, the conversation that we've had and I look forward to having much more of these conversations with you.